Alex Del Sordo, and I have been doing Coaches Yelling uh, with Eric Murray. He won the first one, but now I get him alone in myself. And uh, I, I'm, I'm up late last night thinking, what am I going to say to this guy? What am I going to talk about? Because he's done hundreds of these. And this guy, and if you don't know him, uh, you're not a real rower. I mean, for God's sakes, like the guy has won <laughs> so many Olympics medals. He's won world championships. Uh, one of the most popular rowers in our sport. But Eric, thank you for doing this this morning with us uh, on, on uh, the podcast. No, sweet, buddy. Good. Uh, anytime. Anytime. Always <laughs> here to help. Share the love. <laughs> so listen, man, I do this with everybody. Uh, and unfortunately, they're not as popular as you and Ron. So we all know what you did at the Olympic level. But walk me through how old were you? Where were you when you took your first stroke? How did you get involved with rowing and what led you to work with uh, Bond? <laughs> I, I tell people all the time, man, it's great when you go to kids and stuff and you go, look, get into rowing because you're going to get time off school. And I'm like, yeah. And that's basically why I signed up for rowing was to get time off school because you get Fridays off if you're going to regattas or there's a week here and there for different big events. Um, and, and at the same time, like I was a bit of a chubby kid. Um, you know, I sort of grew out. I grew up and out a little bit. So I was trying to find a sport uh, that would sort of complement rugby because in New Zealand, rugby is number one. That's what we play. Uh, and so I was playing rugby in the winter, which is sort of the end of April months, right through until sort of August, September. Uh, and I just really wanted to find something in the summer to, to play and enjoy, keep fit, and sort of slipped upon rowing, basically because you get mustered at the school, saying, look, anyone want to try this sport, come on down. Um, and that's how it happened. Wow, so how old were you when you took your first stroke? You said you were a chubby kid. <laughs> like, how yeah, yeah. old were you when, when you took it? Uh, 15, uh, 15, 14, 14. 14, nearly 15 um, was the first year. And like, to be fair, the first couple of years were just shocking, um, like terrible. Uh, you know, we pretty much wasted our novice year because we were just like larrikins having a bit of a laugh. Mm. Um, and, and that's sort of what happened. And then slowly, you start to figure out, rowing's a great sport and and I tell it to people all the time, even to business people at the same time, that rowing's a sport where like work in equals results. Put the work in, the time, the effort, the intensity, that sort of stuff. You get really good results out of it. You don't find there's too many people that, that train hard and they're doing a lot of miles and that sort of thing and they don't actually produce like reasonable results. Um, and that's what I started figuring out over that time that that was what was happening. Um, and then, all of a sudden you start getting some medals or making some finals. Um, and then all of a sudden you want to actually push on and see where you can take it. So when did you start actually winning medals? Like when did you start getting good at rowing? Was it early on? I mean, you said there was a couple of years it was terrible. Like, yeah, no, no, it, it, it took, it took a couple of years, like our final year at high school. Um, so sort of 17, 18 year old um, was when I finally won a uh, like uh, championship event. Um, and that was like the Marty Cup. We were in like the quad. Um, and that was basically the first sort of big event that we'd won. You know, we'd won a couple of little regattas and bits and pieces before that. Um, or we were generally in the finals um, in that year. But like the previous year and stuff like that, like, you know, we were, we, our goals were just to make finals. Um, and that was what we were doing. And so it wasn't until that really my end year in high school um, that, we actually won something um, and so it's one thing I try and explain to people at the moment because they want to see results really quickly and they see their mates or the people before them winning and you're like look it can take a bit of time you know give it the patience and, and get going and that's and that's really what what I found was that 
one reason we were just half-assing it <laughs> and then the other reason is just took us that long to get good at what we were doing and and in that so at what point did you start to get a, a growth spurt like at what point did you start to grow into your body and, and become the size you are yeah don't mind my boy's just hanging around here so he can join in on the interview um i guess it was probably around this sort of age of 18, 19, like even in my junior year when I made the junior team um, and we went to Croatia in 2000, that year I sort of found that I went from this sort of chubby, undeveloped kid to probably, you know, maybe I was a bit of a late bloomer and you start to get the hormones and you start to go through and then all of a sudden you get a bit of muscle growth um, and then you start to slim down a little bit. So you don't necessarily change any weight, but the look you just changes um, and that's really what I found was it was sort of around that sort of 19 20 year old was really when I started to mature into the body like of more of an athlete rather than like of a chubby kid and 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 when you graduate high school um, where did you go to university what, what, what happens in that period of your time yeah so we we don't really have a great university program in New Zealand and like a lot of our athletes now are shipping up heading to the states which is which is fantastic um, I sort of had the, I did actually have the opportunity. Um, I was, um, I was, uh, is it Bob Ernest, the guy, uh, University of Washington? I was oh, emailing yeah, a few. You recruited by Washington. I was, I was in contact with a few guys after my junior year um, when we were in Croatia. We met up with a couple of people and the offers were on the table. But the problem was back then was that the scholarships for guys were like, come over, you've got to pay for everything. And I just, we just couldn't do it. Um, so basically from that point, I was like, look, I'm going to go to university. And I went down, um, down to Christchurch University down there. But then sort of rowing took over a little bit more um, with squad and development. And then I was asked to come to Carapiro to be in like a, in an academy. And so that was really uh, when I said, well, you know, this a nudge. You can stay at the same time, just do it online, extramural type of work. Uh, so I sort of decided that that path was the way that I wanted to go, and that's really where I took it. And okay, so you know, you're like 2021. 20, when do you get connected with Bond, and when do you guys start rowing together as a team? Uh, so Hamish came into the program. He was a junior in the years of 2004. Uh, no, 2003. So he was a junior 2003. So we, we were sort of like a three-year, there's a three-year difference between Hamish and I. Oh. Um, and and I look at that and think, you know, maybe if, if we were in the program around at the same time, maybe we would have rode together for, for longer, if that makes sense. Um, and so he was in that year that did all the testing for Athens that went, man, this is going to suck. It's going to be so windy. Um, you know, they were the thousand meter races where everybody was sinking and that type of thing. Um, and so, of course, then I was going to the Olympics as a, as a 22-year-old um, in Athens. And so, therefore, what happened was that he, he sort of made it the under-23s a year after, and then he made it into the elite team um, quite young. But he was actually just showed, uh, like, his, his work ethic and not so much talent, but the idea that he could just work. And he just had this underdog mentality, like, because he was a smaller guy, you know, even back then he was sort of pushing, you know, pushing mid 80s. And he's just trying to keep up with all of us that are sitting around that high 90s, 100 gigs. Um, and, and that was sort of uh, his philosophy was just to push hard, just knock all these big guys off. And so it was really 2006 he came into the four that we were in. 
Um, and then basically we spent three years in the four together just uh, in, in teaming up. And then, you know, on the side of that, we were doing pairs together. You know, when you break up the four, you jump in pairs. So yeah. we actually knew quite early on that we were good in a pair. Uh, and it really just wasn't until after our disappointment where we screwed it up in Beijing um, that we got together and actually decided to have a nudge at the pair. So 2008, so it was 2008 that you guys started to, 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 to find that path together? Like that's when that happened? Yeah, so 2008, um, for most people, if they want to go back and have a look at the history, <laughs> um, was, you know, we were world, champs, world champions 2007. I love that race. Honestly, you guys got to watch that race. Put it up on YouTube. Um, it's on there at the moment. Uh, you know, we were last through the K. It was only a second in creating everybody. Um, and, of course, we went into Beijing year as world champions, and we just couldn't find what was making us go well that year in 2007 to transfer that into 2008. We were always searching for technique and speed. We were just off all the time, um, you know, and we were just making finals of World Cups that year. And then we went to the Olympics, fourth in the, in the semi, watch one, two and three go on to get gold, silver and bronze rest history. So it was really at that point where um, we, I was sort of ready to take a bit of a break because I was like, man, trajectories like this, you know, fifth in Athens, <laughs> Beijing seventh. And I'm like, man, I'm not going that way. Um, but of course, I had a bit of unfinished business. And, and he spoke to me about doing the pair. And I said, look, mate, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give it a, a month or two to digest and see where we go. Um, and then it was really the fact that he came to me and said, look, Dick wants to coach us. Um, and he thinks we'll actually go quite well in the pair. And when you've got one of the best rowing coaches in the world that says, hey, look, come and, come and, come and train under to me, um, you know, I think we can do some good stuff. You go, well, shit, it's an opportunity that you can't really turn down. Um, and that's really when I came back into the program. Uh, so, okay, so he, he sort of, he encouraged you to, to do this pair with you. Like, he was the one that was really pushing it. Um, you know, I, I have a million questions here, Eric. And, I, and I, I, one comes to mind is, you guys were pair partners for what? Uh, eight years, nine years, like you guys did it over two cycles, right? Yeah. Um, did you guys ever argue yep. or yell or fight or, or piss and moan with one another? <laughs> like, what was it like inside that boat quietly, <laughs> you guys? Right. Okay. Here's the exclusive. Um, <laughs> uh, to, to be fair, no. Um, there was, I, I don't, and, I, and it's really hard to understand why, because you, you see it all the time in different crews and stuff like that, and they just implode. You know, people hate each other, and they're like, if you this, and that guy's a, a sea hunt, and, you know, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and you're just like, man, okay. Um, and, and we really never had that. I think probably because the reason was that Hamish truly believed that he was the number one right, and he was like, I'm going to be the best, and I'm going to get Eric to come along with me, and we're going to be, like, world champions. And, and on the other flip of it I was like okay mate I'm a bit stronger than you and, and all this sort of stuff but yes if we work together it's going to go really well um, and so what really happened quite quickly was that we had a hundred percent trust in one another that we were going to train to the death we were going to put our bodies on the line our minds on the line where we weren't going to back down no matter what was put in front of us we would do it um, and I think that showed a little bit because see on the water Hamish was an absolute demon um, when he was on the bike an absolute demon and I'd keep up with him for you know, if we went for a 100k bike ride, I'd be there for 95k and then he'd drop me at the finish. But he'd know that I'd stay there the whole time. 
And so on the flip side, when I'm on the rowing machine and I'm doing these like incredible tests and, and, and pieces, he knew he's just going, man, I can't keep up with that, but I'm going to try. So ultimately, you've got two people together that want to be the best that are going to break themselves to do it. You don't have to ask those questions. You know, and I think that's the thing is that the moment that you've, you've got a bit of a doubt from somebody, that's when trust issues and stuff seep in. So I guess on the other side of things as well is we had a dictator and a coach, like Dick, the dictator, literally. So neither of us really could go up to him and say, Dick, can we try this? Can we try that? We just kept our mouths shut we t and we were told what to do. Like we basically got through to the Olympic Games without even sort of giving too much feedback. We just got told what to do every single day. We did it. And we went really well with it. Um, but ultimately, while we were in the boat together, if I said something to Hamish, like, mate, I think the catch is a bit hard or, you know, our finish is a bit rough or we need to, like, maybe just try and, and free things up a bit, do this, you know, feel a feet a bit more, whatever it was, he'd go, okay, we'll do that. And then on the flip side, if Hamish said that to me, because ultimately we knew that whatever either of us was asking the boat to do together was going to make us go better. So we both entertained the idea. So there wasn't one leader or whatever. You know, I did all the calling just because I'm facing this way and, and I can't hear Hamish if he's saying anything. Um, but apart from that, it was a really um, like 50-50 partnership. Um, and that's really, I think, what made it work. And I think the other side of it as well, um, truly believe, and I, and I know it's really hard is, you know, Rowan's really social and we love, you know, going, yeah, and, and it is, it's great. And, and Hamish and I are really good friends. Um, would I say we're like best mates? No. Um, like we're mates, but we're not best mates. And I think that's what kept it separate at the same time because of the fact that I was in a different stage of life when Hamish was when we came in the pier. So, of course, it wasn't like, mate, let's go to the cafe, let's have a coffee, or let's go to the pub, have a beer. We'll come down to rowing, we'll do our stuff, and then you go you back to your place, I'll go back to mine, and then we'll come back to the centre and we'll do our job. Um, and that's probably really what made it work quite well. Uh, because if you're living in each other's pockets and things aren't going great, that's when you find that tensions and stuff start to build. You said something. You said something interesting. You said it was a job. Like it was your job. That was your profession, right? And I think that a lot of people don't treat rowing like a profession. Um, and and maybe that was that difference, right? You guys kept it at the water at the boathouse, and you would walk away, and you'd have your your separation. Um, you know, in that time, like you're rowing together, like how much time was committed to rowing together and training together? And how much were you doing outside of each other's uh, presence? In, in training terms? In training um, terms. Yeah, in training terms, especially while we were with Dick, uh, pretty much zero. So it was always, um, we'd come, and, and the one, so this is, <laughs> Dick Tonks, um, you know, like he's got a bit of a, I, I guess, um, uh, I'm trying to use the best words to describe Dick. Um, the, the fact is that he, it is a really dictatorship and, and you probably hear people, especially over in North America, like probably uh, in terms of Mike Spracklin, just real hard nosed, just do whatever I bloody tell you to do and don't ask any questions. So what the thing with Dick is his philosophy was just row, 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 row your boat. Hmm. Very, very very hard very very hardly down the stream and and that was basically what we did is that up until 2010 and, and like we sort of alluded to it in the book but it's probably hearing it from horse's mouth we we got to we we, we finished the world champs of carapero we just won and we had like three weeks off came back training and dick just said right we're not going to do any more weights we're wasting our time we're not going to get any stronger 
we're going to get faster by being um, fitter than we are by being stronger. So what happened was our kilometers went from about 200 to 220 a week to about 260, 280 a week, which is, is horrible. It's, it's horrible. But we were doing different things like power strokes and stuff on the water to offset it. So we ended up basically rowing two to three times a day, every single day. There'd be the occasional time where we got to go on the rowing machine if it was rough. And like the very odd occasion, maybe once a month to go on the bikes, but every single other time was on the water and we just rode. And to be fair, we did go really, really fast because of it. But the fact was, it was brutal, man. Like there was just absolutely no break around it. Um, and that was sort of the really hard thing to get your head around was the fact that you were just rowing all the time and it was hard. I, I, do you, now, looking back on it, as a 38-year-old man now, like, do you think that that is just unnecessary? Do you think it's necessary to row 260K a week? That just seems crazy. If you want to win an Olympic gold medal, you do whatever it takes, okay? And we were at, that, we were at the situation where we just had to sit there and go, how are we going to win an Olympic gold medal? Right, did it with Rob Bedell, yep. He did it with Eva Swindells twice, okay, yep. Um, shit, if we want to do this, we just got to do what he tells us to do. So if he came and he said, right, we're not going to row for a month, we're just going to sit on the bikes and do 300Ks a day, we would have done 300Ks a day. Like, it was just, that that's what he said we were going to do, and so we did it. Um, and, and there was never any questioning about it because he's the one with the experience, he's the coach, he's the one that you've got to put the trust into. Um, and, and that's the way we did it. Now, what we did do, yes, we did, we did move away from that and we did revolutionize training. Um, and I, I sort of don't, I, somehow, sometimes I don't like going there with this sort of comment, but in 2013 and probably half of 2014, we only rode once a day on the water. So we'd go down every morning, we'd row once a day, and then every other session was on the bikes or on the rowing machine. So we actually just completely flipped it from being 100% rowing to about 50 to 60% rowing. Um, and we still went just as fast. Now, the problem with that is that, that if, you, if you're not up to the level in technique and the learning, the understanding of the boat, you probably need to be doing 70 to 80% on the water. Um, I don't think you need to be doing 100%. That's, that's for certain. Um, but the, the, the flip side of it is when you, when you are off the water, you've got to make sure it counts. You know, it's not like, oh, the coach has told us to do 45 minutes on the erg. So you spend 15 minutes of that warming up and then, and then half an hour of it, like, pushing yourself. It's like, okay, warm up first and then hit it and then do it. You know, and that's the thing. We'd, we'd have these, like, three-hour bike rides, you know, pushing 100-plus Ks. And it wasn't just like sitting there side by side talking to each other. It was hammering it, you know, like, and that's the difference. So, you know, you've, you've got to look at it. Yes, you can get really fit by doing other things, but you've just got to make sure you're just not doing it to clock up the time. You're actually doing it to clock up the time um, in the intensity that you need to be doing it. So let me ask you this, you know, like when I'm, so when you're rowing, I'm, it was, I'm graduating college, I'm, I'm taking, I'm watching rowing on a serious level, and I'm watching you win by 15 lengths open water. I'm watching <laughs> yeah. you guys, and everyone in my life is saying, who the hell are these guys? Like, yeah, yeah. I, sh I, sh I should explain that a little bit, because I, I don't think it's real, and it's what we said before we started, mate, like getting some of these questions that people ask me, I don't think we've really put it into context why that started happening. Um, we, we started to find that we do these races and, you know, quite often we weren't leading at the 
500, we'd be pushing it through the thousand, this sort of thing. Um, and then what we were doing, probably uh, sort of a little bit up to London, but especially after London, we were finding that our role would go to because we take the pressure off we take the rating down just to stay in front you know just so we could cross the finish line first and so we were finding we'd have these horrible races we thought you know what the first k was great you know and we'd be like oh, this is terrible and so then we just started going well why don't we just keep the foot on and, and just push it all the way like we're not we're not going like a hundred percent winding it to the line but we're just basically time trialing it so we go from the start to the finish we keep the intensity all the way right to the finish line and go through the line. And then we'd actually find we'd feel better in ourselves as well. And we'd recover better because we weren't sort of fighting the finish in a, you know, like in an awkward position. So over the years, especially sort of 13, like 14, 15, especially, we go into heats and we'd get out in front and we just wouldn't slow down. We're just like, well, let's just keep going. Um, but of course, our training had allowed us to do that because while we're back here in New Zealand, um, we're not just doing one 2K time trial, we're doing three over three days. You know, we're emulating World Cup situations and things like that. So we did have the ability to be able to do that anyway. Um, and like what used to happen exactly like that is we just keep bowling out in front of everybody else. And next minute we've won the race by 10 or 12 seconds and everyone's like going, what are you doing? Like you, you should have just backed off. And we're like, well, why should we back off? You know, it was sort of one of the questions I asked. I said, well, why? Like who says that we should just do enough to win and get across. Okay, it's not the Royal Henley Regatta where you're a gentleman and you just do enough to, to win. Um, we were like, nah, we're, we're going to go. And every race, every opportunity that we had was a, an opportunity for us to learn. You know, how well did that go? Where did we lose our speed? Did we lose speed in that third 500? Okay, we lost two seconds. Not good enough. Let's do it again. You know, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. So we're always learning from whatever we did. Um, and wouldn't you say in any sport that you've got to learn, you've got to learn all the time, you've got to evolve, you've got to keep moving forward. And so that's basically what we were trying to do in those races. But on what was happening consequently was that we were winning the by bloody country mile and everybody's like, Oh shit. <laughs> Did you ever lose motivation from that? I mean, I would think like, let me, let me, let me say this. Like if I'm, if I'm being told by your dictator of a coach to do 260 K a day a week and I'm like, well, I'm winning by 30 seconds. I could probably scale back a little bit because that's human nature, right? But how did you keep that motivation when winning so much and doing so much for you? I was going to post something on Instagram yesterday because I saw a memory that came up on my, um, on my Facebook. And it was a picture of us in the fog. It was a beautiful picture of us training against our men's double. And I actually just wanted to come out with the tagline and say, like, if you want to get better, pin yourself against people that are faster or better than you and try and match them, okay? And that's what we did every single day. So we had training partners. We had either a lightweight men's double, a men's double, or a women's quad. And we would train against them every single day. Like every time we were on the water, if Dick said to us, right, we're going to do 20, 26K, whatever it was, to a certain point, turn around, he would go, okay, away you go, 20 rate, and we'd have to keep 20 rate, and we'd have to sit next to a double. Mm. like come on you know what I mean and so a double should be you know okay they're pushing 10 seconds quicker than you every 2k so you've got to go 10 seconds quicker per k than you think you can go um, with the intensity and so what happened was just our intensity just kept lifting and lifting and lifting so you know we would be doing phenomenal numbers and we just had to in order to stay in that training group 
And very, very often, like most of the time, we'd get halfway home, you know, 5K to home, and these guys are starting to row away from us. And we've got no option but bump up the rate of point or add some more gas and try and stay with them. And probably 70% of the time we couldn't. But the fact was that we tried every single day. So it's just that intensity that we brought to the training just really lifted the speed that we were able to produce at training. But then at the same time, we're racing these guys. You know, if, if we were going to do a 5K race or if Dick said, right, we're going to do a couple of 2Ks at set rates, you've got to try and stay in front of them. So we might get a five-second head start, stay in front of them, just stay in front of them. It's as simple as that. It's, 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 it sounds really simple, but it's really, really difficult. And so all our training was just don't let other people beat us. And then we just took that into a racing philosophy at the same time. Yeah, the consistency. So, you know, as, I, as I'm hearing you and I'm like, I'm wondering, and we talked about this in some of the coaches yelling, um, were there the other countries seeing you win so much? Did, did, why don't you think like they put some of their best athletes into the double, into the pair? Because I know that like Great Britain puts their top guys in the eight, right? For the Germans or the Americans. In that time, why didn't you move up to a different boat class or maybe why didn't other guys go in other boat classes in that time? Yeah. So probably one of my biggest regrets um, is that we didn't really nurture the people around us. Um, so, uh, and, and it goes right back to what we said at the start where Hamish just wanted to find the next best person and be like, right, we're going to smash it. We're going to be world beaters. So what we didn't really do was we didn't bring anybody else along for the ride um you know and, and some of those people probably didn't have the same philosophy that we did so you know we'd sit on the row machines you know and you would do these tests and stuff beside people and there was a huge divide you know there was a massive divide you know hamish and, and myself were doing low 15 minutes on on 5ks you know um and then other people were struggling to break 16s you know they might be doing 50s or whatever so all of a sudden you've got this huge difference between us and them so we couldn't really make a four. We had some really good guys that were rowing, um, but if you took them and said, right, should we make a four? Let's see how well it could go. I truly didn't. I saw a couple of people that could have been good enough, but would they have come to the same intensity? Could they have done the same thing that we did? Probably not. Um, and I think that's what happened around the world at the same time, because a lot of a lot of crews, especially like what happens in America a little bit, like all that small boat stuff's dictated by the people that want to do it. Like if you want to do it, you're going to go to the pair trials. You're going to go to the single trials and doubles. You know, you're going to do that because you want to be in those boats. Um, and the fact was, I think a lot of people around the world were just like, well, maybe I would like to race here in Hamish, but I can't be bothered. Well, I'd rather be in the four. I'd rather be in the eight because I think I've got a better chance at winning. Um, and a lot of it just does come down to it. And it's probably a question that needs to be asked to some of the other competitors. Like, would you have wanted to? Or did you ever think that maybe you, on your best day, could have done something really good against them? Um, or was your, was your thinking, I just want to win, so that's why I'm in the four or the quad or the eight or the double, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that's probably something a lot of people could answer probably better than what I can. Like, you know, forgive me, I'm going to curse here for a minute. I'm like, you're like, you're like fucking Michael Jordan. Like you are <laughs> a different level of rowing. Like you're talking about 15 minutes for your, for your 5Ks. You're talking about these, these incredibly long rows and, and going hard and intensity all the time. In your, in your period of time, in those 10 years that you were doing this, um, 
you, you were like a celebrity in the rowing world, but you weren't a celebrity outside the rowing world. Like what, what were you doing to get your name out there and promoting yourselves? Was there anything? Were you guys trying to get the name out there and, and blow it up? Oh, look, rowing's, and we, we spoke about this on that, on Coaches Yelling, you know, there's, rowing just doesn't have like the superstars. You know, it's, it's not a sport that's in mainstream media. Um, you know, if there was some sort of league that could be done every week, then you've got a different kettle of fish. See, in New Zealand, we, we're in the media for, for three weekends a year and then one week while we have um, the world champs. And then at the Olympic Games, there's a build-up to it and then you have the Olympics and that sort of thing. And if you do well, you put on the pedestal and then you sort of put into that sporting personality type thing. Um, so it's not a sport where you enter into going, yeah, I'm going to be rich. It's going to make me famous. Um, because ultimately, it's, it's, a, it's an addictive sport that we love, you know, and we, and we get involved. But for whatever reason you do and you continue going with it, you keep pushing yourself, you keep seeing how far you can go. Uh, and that was really the case with us. Um, you know, we, we had something slightly different that we were this partnership. And then we started getting a little bit more of a name because we, we ended up beaten. Um, and then we set world records. And so people were like, wow, this is something different. This hasn't happened before. This is, uh, this, is, this is different, you know. And then ultimately, we got to that stage where, yeah, we were talked about a little bit more. You know, you get a few people that want to sponsor you and get under the, uh, and, and help you along. Um, and so that was great. Um, but ultimately, to, to be fair, like rowing is one of the most selfish bloody sports you can imagine. You know, there's a lot of them. But you do it for yourself. You know, your family gets put on the back burner. Your social life gets put on the back burner. Everything else, you know, you just like, I'm doing this. Screw you guys. Uh, I've got to go training tomorrow, so I'm not going out tonight. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Um, and it's as simple as it goes. Like, see, ya. like we, we, the one thing a lot of people don't realise is, like, in New Zealand, and same a little bit for the Aussies, is that um, we we piss off overseas for three months a year. Like, we didn't just go up there and then fly back and then come back up for like world champs. We went for three months. It was like, see ya, and then gone. Pack your bag on the plane i'll see you in three months and it's literally how we did it and it like did i feel bad a eh, little bit but i was like who cares i'm going over to race uh world cups and a few regattas overseas and and, and try and win world championships so you know that that's the side of it as well that you've got to remember that it is a pretty bloody selfish sport to be fair no you're, you're not wrong i mean I, I, man i mean again i have a million questions and i want to keep this to a tight time frame what kind of boat were you rowing uh in that time were you rowing empockers or philippies at that at so you so you're probably going to get a reasonably good exclusive on this one um to be fair you will um i i've talked to it with a couple of people hamish and i didn't get a new boat every year okay um we got new oars we love concept twos and for people out there and i don't know why and uh, i'll be careful with this um we used an oar called low eyes they're called a low inertia or made by concept two. I absolutely do not know why people, more people are not using them. I cannot understand it. Okay. Um, the Danish lightweight means four, like through that sort of 04 to 08, even into London, we're, we're using them. So they're a lighter Um, They're about 10 per slider. Okay, and I know skinnies at a big rage because it's aerodynamic and stuff like that. But man, we when we used these low eye oars, uh, they were phenomenal, man. They just hand speed around the finish. There's just nothing. It was just the, the oar would float away because there's no force. The the hence the low inertia. Bang. And we were just like, wow, okay, probably did allow us to rate quite high, but 
there was no heaviness in the hands, lighter um, in the headwinds. It was a little bit more tricky. But I just was like, man, I don't know why more people aren't getting onto these. And we sort of at sometimes Hamish got a bit paranoid and had taken the little label off the back. So you couldn't <laughs> realise it was a lower. Well, because honestly, all the coaches go around and they measure all the shit up and do all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that, so those were our oars that we, we clipped onto and we kept those. Same, same oars, same specs, fixed handle. 377, 116, whole time, never changed it. Um, and then our impacker, we got an impacker in 2009 when we went overseas. And we basically kept that through until 11. And uh, it actually came down to New Zealand for the world champs. We got a new, new one. Um, we kept that and we rode that through. You know, and actually know that story that we got Rainer and Helmet Impacker to basically take it back to the factory in Eberbach and um, put it on the rack and we'll get it back. And <laughs> funny, funny story <laughs> is we turned up in 20, 2016, we turned up to the World Cup in Lucerne um, and we had a brand new boat, started, didn't like it. It was just too stiff. We were like, nah, I don't like this. And the, um, the, it was either the Czechs or the Serbians had been given our old boat um, to use for the regatta. They used it. We used the new one. We still won, but we didn't really like it that much. Um, and then basically we went to them after the thing with helmet. We said, look, can we get that boat back? Because they were going to take that boat over to the Olympic. We said, look, can we take that boat? We'll use it here. And, and then we would send it over to Rio. Um, so we pinched the boat back off them um, and we used that. So basically we had a five-year-old boat that we raced at the Rio Olympics, okay? And it was just because we, we changed little bits here and there. We didn't do any wholesale changes, but really effectively it had only been used for like three months a year. So it was, when you look at it, it's only like just over a year old in terms of like use. Um, and so we, we didn't like, we didn't feel like we needed brand new boats. Um, we tried carbon riggers. They were a bit hard on Hamish's back just because they were a bit stiff. So, you know, we, we, we went through all of these things over time and we just found something that worked for us and we just kept using what we had worked and just tweaking little things all the time. And it was probably one of the, a little bit off subject, but the fact is that, you know, don't go into something and go, right, we're going to change our technique today. We're going to change our training. We're going to bump the heights up and we're also going to change your pitch. Okay, you had a great row. What worked? All of it, one of it. You don't know. Um, and so we were always going, okay, why don't we just give ourselves a little bit more pitch or a little less pitch? Let's row that for a week, see how that goes. Okay, that felt better. Okay, let's try our heights down a bit or up a bit. Okay, that felt good. What about our feet? How about our placement in the seat? You know, all this sort of thing. Um, and so we'd work on that stuff, but we'd take our time to figure out whether it was actually working or not. I, I love that story. I had no idea. Uh, now, back in New Zealand, what were you rowing in New Zealand? Still empires, just, just an older? Yeah. Yeah, we, we had an impacker, and to be fair, we, we probably should have got a new one sent down um, because that one was getting that one had a lot of miles on it, man, and it was um it was it was it was pretty good. I think we got a new set of riggers for it, but you know by that stage the boat had had sort of 2010 to 2016, so it had it had had six years of oh probably 30,000 30, k's a year type of business on it, you know, like um so it had done it had done a lot of uh, miles on the plot um, but we, we just didn't really feel like for the the fact of a year of getting impacker to see it spend the expense to send one down 
um, you know, it was the same shape. It was everything that we were using in Europe. Um, and so, yeah, we were just doing that. So anyone that wants to know, it's an R32. R32. It's a beautiful boat. <laughs> People will want to know that. Uh, <laughs> so what was your favorite workout on the ERG? So when you were training, out of all the workouts you've done, what was like the favorite one to do every week or every month? Um, oh, man. And probably we didn't really have too much favorites because our physiologist was just really like heart rate specific, um, push it. One of the one that I, I enjoyed doing it, but I absolutely fucking hated it. Excuse the language. Um, <laughs> we would do 40 on by 20 offs. So 40 strokes on 20, uh, sorry, 40, 40 seconds on 20 seconds off. Um, two sets of 15 of that. Okay. And that's at full tip. So not, not like above pace, you've got to gun it. Um, and, the, and that is probably, we do that every second week. And it was part of, um, it was really, it's like, um, it's called like lactate tolerance because you do this 40 seconds and you finish and you go, whoa, okay, holding like low 120s. Next minute you look at the clock and you've got seven seconds left in the rest. And the secret to the workout is that you don't go when it says zero, otherwise your average time is crap. So you've got to be winding it with about four seconds to go. So yeah, this is where it gets really hard. And of course, you've got Hamish sitting next to you and I'm here. So he's going, I'm like, okay, I've got to go. Um, and, and at the end of it, it's basically to see who's got the lowest average. Um, yeah. And so if you don't hit that line at speed, then your average is going to be slow for that piece. And then all of a sudden, so that was a really fun workout because we were just pushing ourselves all the time to do it as hard as we could. It wasn't like the longest of workouts, but the fact was that it really pushed the limits and you saw the benefit every week. You got a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker, a little bit quicker. So, and sort of the testing wise, you go, well, I am getting faster, man. We are getting fitter. We're getting a bit more powerful. I felt like I could rate, you know, 40 this week and, you know, 38, 39. Um, and, and those were, those were the best. And I guess on the other side of it, like as a rower, um, just to test yourself every week, like we do two days a week, we would just do an hour, just an hour, right? And it's at 20 rate and you just basically see what you can do with your splits, you know, like how good was I today? You know, am I going sub 145s or am I doing a 144s or 43s, you know, whatever it was. Um, and it would all depend on how tired you were and the workouts you've done previously. But um, to be fair, a lot of those times, literally, you know, you've got Hamish who's 90 kilograms, I was always sort of 99, 100 and, and like working up to world champs, hitting 98 for world champs. And I'm sitting there watching his numbers and they're exactly the same. And I'm like, man, that's like, that's phenomenal. And so he was actually an like, absolute demon when you're just doing that training stuff. Um, and anyone that follows his Instagram will see it now. Like he can just go, 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 go. And that's what makes him phenomenal. He doesn't have like the most outstanding, like explosive power, but when you need somebody to that can sub-split a race and go faster in the third 500 than the second 500, he's your man. Wow. So, you know, one thing someone had asked me to ask you, uh, because I told all my friends that I'm, I'm interviewing you today, and uh, they said, what, was, what did he go through emotionally after leaving all of that success? So you, you, you leave the success, right? You, you, you move on from your career. What was going through your head? What was going with your family and, 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 and everyone around you? What was it like leaving that success? Um, I th think for us it was, well, for me it was relatively easy because in, in a sense I 
did what I and I wanted to keep going. Um, like I got my son, he's eight now, like he's on the autistic spectrum. So I was doing some stuff with him at school and he was probably one of the big catalysts. I was like, look, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to have to go away overseas for three months every year. Um, that's going to be tough. And there's all these, all these bits and pieces. And so I, I just didn't have that desire to go out there and punish myself. Like I used to be able to, um, you know, I didn't really have that clear goal, that clear, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is my target. This is where I'm going to go. It sort of flipped to being, I'd rather be doing things outside of rowing than actually rowing. Um, and so that for me was really the big catalyst to say, look, I'm, I'm done. Um, I guess on that, on that note, I'm probably one of the lucky ones where uh, I had that work experience and I had that semi-professional slash amateur life growing up so you know in my first few years even through like honestly even through till about 2007 rowing in New Zealand was very amateur slash professional you know we didn't get funded really until about 2007 2008 um, and so we were working you know and so um, I had done business management degree and then obviously I was working at a place in town and, and sort of doing operations management so I had this experience of, of going into it and I think what's what 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 in my, my opinion, what I'm finding with looking from an outsider's perspective of what people are doing now, you've got all of these people that come out of sport, like especially like take Rome, for example, and you're a 32-year-old, cool, okay, you've, you've achieved your goal, or you haven't achieved your goal, whatever, you've time to call it a day, you go back to where that 22-year-old graduate is coming out of, um, out of university, okay, and that's what's really hard, I think, for a lot of people to get their heads around, um, where the people that have been doing that part-time stuff or keeping engaged outside and work situations, that type of thing, have that little bit of foot in the door. So then you don't go from being a 32-year-old in a 22-year-old world. You go from being a 32-year-old in a 28-year-old world and you go, well, that's fine. Okay, I've done, I've done eight years of part-time work, um, you know, two days a week, eight hours a week, who cares? But you've learned how things work, how life works outside of like sport. Um, and I think I was really lucky to have that. So then I was able to step into positions. Yeah, I had, I had some good people that wanted to work with me, um, you know, that asked me to come, come and help them. And I've used that knowledge of not only the degree that you use, but that work experience and you put it all together. So it's very difficult now. And I, and I will say that it's really hard because people want to be, they want you to be full-time, nothing outside. Don't do this, don't do that. And I do think that that shouldn't be the case. I definitely think there is room for people to actually be getting that work experience outside, even if it's internship stuff, you know, like when you have your breaks, you know, you get three or four weeks off a year, whatever it might be, go and work somewhere, you know, like there's a lot of people that are following your progress. They want to help out at the same time. Go, look, I've studied my accountant's degree. I've got, I'm, I'm an accountant, you know, cool. Why don't you come and work with, with me for a month? You know, even if you doing the crap jobs who cares you've got that experience and then you can walk away from your sport and go I've got eight years at ABC Accounting Limited as an accountant and someone will go oh cool well, why don't you come and do our chartered accounts here at our office and then all of a sudden you've moved away from your sport into a career and you're there um, and I and I really think that's something that uh, I don't know if it'll ever change but I think people uh, personally have to take that initiative themselves to be able to find out how that goes because if you keep your head in the sand you can you can have two or three degrees in the time if you spend 12 or 14 years in the programs and you come out and people go oh cool you've got triple degree in this this and this 
okay, what's your work experience? Oh, you don't have any. Okay. And that's where I think the issues are found is that work experience um, is far more valuable than having uh, letters and stuff beside your name. Now, um, I, I don't know this actually, and I think, forgive me, but what are you doing now with your life? Like, what do you do outside? I mean, now that you're, you know, like today, I don't know, like, what are you doing today <laughs> for a profession? What am I doing today? Um, I'm going to go play golf. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I, well, I actually am going to play golf this afternoon. Um, so I work in business development here. Um, and so a lot of, well, we've got a company down here called Ergfit, and we basically work with Concept2. Uh, we work with that. Uh, I'm also working with uh, one of the top banks here in New Zealand uh, as an ambassador. So that side of things I'm quite lucky about. Um, but day-to-day -day stuff is business development, trying to grow the company, um, do the ambassador role. I'm also patron for Autism New Zealand. Um, just because of like Zach and my son and I push that sort of autism message there's uh, a really good connection there um, and so and then also at the same time I'm working with the guys from the Sensei on the um, on the connected coaching app so I've got some good opportunities um, and to be fair a lot of like, there's a lot going on um, and sometimes you've got to sort of slow down and say look you know, you've got your boy to worry about he's got to go to school he's got to do all this other stuff um, and so life can get pretty busy and that's one thing I've been finding, but bread and butter type of things. Um, it's just using that experience that I've had to set your targets, get them done, um, and show the initiative of, of going through your day-to-day, -day, getting things finished, you know, and making sure they're done properly. Um, and I think that is, that is one of the things, you know, all of those life skills that you've learned from rowing, you, you being are... able to take them into that job situation, that is probably why you get it. There was a, I'm looking at your career, like you were an intense person, right? Like you spent hours and hours and hours focused on training every single day. Like, is there, do you, I mean, I know that you're doing all these things, but like, how do you, how do you handle that intensity every single day and that focus and, and not having to do that anymore? Uh, it's quite nice, actually. <laughs> um, as I say, the, the one thing that I look back on our training and I try to explain to people, we weren't training, we were punishing. Um, you know, we were, we, were, we were putting ourselves into places that we didn't want to be. We were trying, we were being vulnerable every day. We were trying to fail um, in our trainings so that we could learn what to do the next day, you know, what to make it better. Um, and, and that's really, uh, the thing is, I enjoyed that. Um, but of course, it wasn't sustainable. You know, you got to a point where you were just like, man, I don't know how long you were. You were more worried about counting down the days to when you were finished rather than going, oh, I can't wait to get to the world champs. I hope we've done enough. Hope we've done enough. It was more just like, man, I can't wait to take a break. Um, and, I, and I think that just develops over the years to get to that point where it is you're, you're, more, you're more concerned about finishing than you are about the excitement of getting there and I think the moment you start getting those too much into your life is the moment things need to start to change and I think that was one thing with going like going forward I just couldn't find the excitement to say oh I really I really want to go and do another cycle and like I would enjoy being in the eight but I I just know that I couldn't add that value um, and this is what you have to do in, in every day is you you sit there and you've got the target you want to do and you've got to make sure you get it done um, and you focus all your energy into it, but you don't have to punish yourself. So it's nice. You know, you're like, you get more of a, a completism type of uh, 
I get feeling rather than like, thank God that's finished. Um, and I quite enjoy that nowadays um, going back to that because it is sort of that feeling you had when you were younger where you were like, yes, I can't wait to get to that finish line. Whereas I uh, like in an excitable way rather than going, oh my God, just hurry up and finish. Um, and so it is, it is quite nice when you, when you get out of it to turn back into that mode rather than into that sort of slight negative. So I got, I got six questions to finish, and these are like rapid-fire questions, okay? Go. All right. What was your best yep. race of your life? Best race of your life? Oh, best race. Shit. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, man. This is meant to be quick fire. Um, Honestly, I'm 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 gonna go I'm gonna go out like there's there's been some really awesome international races, but there's so many more of the domestic stuff we did here in New Zealand um, when we were racing against like Nathan and Joe or Robbie and Chris in the double, um, you know, women's quad lightweight double that type type of thing that were actually far more exciting and uh, nerve wracking than some of the stuff we did overseas. Um, like, like definitely. I, I definitely put like the two Olympic races are memorable because of what you get at the finish of them, but not the most enjoyable because of the stress and anxiety and stuff around them. I would say one of the best was probably our first race in the pair together, Munich 2009. Um, it was when, you know, Andy and Pete in the pair, Eric and Hamish in the pair, Pete and Andy next pints in a red grave next minute. We're tied all the way down the track with 500 to go and then we bugger off. And then that was sort of the start of the legacy. So I still remember that race quite vividly. I watched it a couple of weeks ago, actually. Wow. Um, and that's, prob yeah, that's probably one of them. Sorry, it's not the quickest answer, but that is probably, because that was the starting point, right? That was like, we're good. We're good on an international stage. How good can we be and how long can we take this for? I love that answer. Uh, favorite venue to row? Favorite, favorite place to row? Um, I actually, in terms of racing, it's definitely Lucerne. I love Lucerne. One of the, Actually, a nice place to train, which I quite enjoyed, is Harzwinkel in Belgium. I actually really enjoyed Harzwinkel. Um, favorite, so this is a difficult question. Like, what's your favorite aspect of rowing? Like, what's, what's like the one thing that you just are in love with, with rowing? Um, one thing that really used to float my boat, um, <laughs> excuse the pun, was going to World Cups and pay, and pacing people in training, World Cups and World Champs, and pacing people. You know, like when everybody's practicing on the course, we used to try and pick off people, man. And like, I remember picking off the American Women's Aid and their quad and just different people. Because you just, you go like, they're training, you know, they're sitting at 20, they're doing like a, a piece just rowing down the track. And if you sit next to them or just in front of them, you can see everybody like looking out of the boat going, hang on, how the hell's a pier sitting beside us? And people people used to do it to us, and I was, I, and I and I knew that. But at the same time, I was like, nah, I'm just going to try and pick people off. So that was probably one of the most enjoyable things about rowing, is just you know being able to compete even when you're not actually racing. I love that. Favorite uh, best best rowing coach uh, of all time. Who's your who's your just your best coach of all time? Oh come on. Um, I'll tell you one person that, and and he's done some really great things. There's, there's two there was 
there's a guy called Chris Nielsen. Um, he worked with Mike Tady and stuff through that 2004, went to Cambridge, came back to New Zealand. He really taught us about finesse. Um, another person currently in the, in the system, Ian Wright, who's now coaching um, Australia, and he coached the Swiss lightweights to win in Rio. Um, absolute hard ass. Like he taught us how to just be hard, you know, like just be mongrels and go hard. Um, Noel, great guy, uh, has that real great mix, really personable person. Um, those are the sort of the people that we've had. And obviously, like Dick, if you want to win, go go get coached by Dick. Um, if you want to, if you want to win, it's not going to be fun. But you know what? What when you start winding it up, what do you want? Do you want a gold medal? Or do you want to have fun? After you've won that gold medal, yeah, you can go and have fun. But um, yeah, first and foremost, gold medal first. Uh, are you friends with Mahi Drysdale? Uh, yeah, I'm friendly with Mahe. Um, you know, we've been in the program together. Uh, we raced in the four together back in the day. We actually did our first year together. 2001, we went to Canadian Henley and then went on to the Canada Cup um, in a four. And then we, yeah, we were in that Athens four together. Then he went in the single. And then we basically trained next to him um, for four years while we were under Dick. And then he was just part of the program with, with the rest of the boys from there. Well, final question. If I get my ass to New Zealand, can I be in a boat with you for a day? Yeah, of course you can, buddy. But guess what? America, at the moment, you guys are shut down. And I don't know when we're going <laughs> to let you buggers back in here with all your coronavirus sickness over there. So we've just opened up here, man. We're, we're sorted, you guys. Oh, man. Well, once we get sorted here, I'm going to get my butt in a boat with you. Uh, Eric Murray, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for being a part of this interview today. hope you enjoyed it. That's all right. I've got my boy. Oh, he's oh, there he is. Look at him, little monkey. Is go, that, go, is get, that go get your toys. Captain America? Is he sporting Captain America? That's Captain America shirt. <laughs> yeah. He is. <laughs> Captain America rules. Well, Eric, thank you for being a part of this. And uh, we hope to have you on Coaches Yelling in the future. Yep. Nah, awesome. Anytime, guys. Love chatting.